Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Backray, UK rate strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale and Jan Lavruzzi. I can't believe I'm saying this, but it feels like a little bit of a quieter week this week after the last few months that we've had, although uh, I did remark to Giles that gilts were very volatile yesterday and he told me they've been very volatile for about the last three months. So <laughs> he really put me in my place. Uh, but let's start with Europe, as I think that's maybe been the slightly more interesting week this week. Um, we've obviously had Sintra, the ECB's um, forum on central banking, uh, and we've had data. So let's start with the data. Um, we had European kind of national inflation, um, national inflation prints this week. Um, I guess the most headline grabbing of those was Germany yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday as a reminder to our listeners. Uh, so that was yesterday. Germany came with a big downside surprise, but then it was kind of been a bit more mixed in other countries. We had Spain that, that didn't surprise the downside. So what do you make of, of these inflation prints, Giles? Well, to be honest with you, not, it seems, quite as much as the market has, because um, you were talking about the the market volatility um, you know, just now. And I mean, today, again, the, the it's off to the races and we are, you know, we're rallying, what is it, 15 basis points or something like that in, in Bund's more in the long end. Um, you know, it just seems like that every day. And that's on the back of a similar move yesterday after, uh, on, you know, as a result of those inflation figures. I think it was always clear that uh, in a reasonably light data calendar globally that the um, these preliminary CPIs coming out of Europe with the reaction to the downside surprise on the, in the UK, uh, when was that last week, I suppose, um, in mind, that was potentially the key, uh, the key release at the global level. And of course, Germany, as you say, came out on the low side and there was a little bit of reaction to that. It turns out that actually, if we had all been paying closer attention, um, it was mostly because there was some technical things around uh, price limits that have been put in place, uh, temporary price limits just over the the summer months on on transportation. Um, Nonetheless, and and then that wasn't, corroborated by the Spanish figures and the French figures have since come out sort of more or less in line with where people thought they were going to be. Now, I think a couple of things just to to keep in mind, Um, most economists, uh, ours included, think that inflation is going to peak later this year. I'm certainly on the the headline figures. Um, And that still seems like it's no, on track. Um, no, so just keep that in mind when you're interpreting the figures in the in, in the short term. And but at the same time, you know, there will be more pushback from from governments. I mean, you know, so this you know, we shouldn't entirely view this German thing as a one-off uh, because governments will be trying to target some of their fiscal measures more and more towards trying to moderate some of the more outsized um, price rises that you're that you're seeing around the place. So that is a little bit of a risk. Uh, doesn't mean the inflation pressures may necessarily go away, but it might address in a very small way some of the concerns about second round effects, which is really what we're going to be watching in the labour market data when uh, the summer's over. 
So speaking of second round effects then and, and the labour market data, that was obviously a big topic of conversation at this week's um, Sintra conference, the ECB's Forum of Central Banking. I guess the main event was yesterday's panel that had um, Lagarde, uh, Bailey and Powell speaking at it. So I've got a p- pretty repetitive question to ask all of us at, at this week's pod. But I guess since we're on Europe, I'll start with you. Did we learn anything new from, from Sintra this week? You know, it's it has been used in the past as a, uh, forum, I suppose, to announce uh, kind of policy changes or signal that the policy changes are coming. Um, did we get any kind of signal or, or learn anything new from from this week's panel discussions? You mean the panel discussion with uh, Andrew, Agustin, uh, Christine, and Jay? Um, <laughs> well, honestly, no. I don't. I. I don't really. I mean, okay, so. <laughs> No, I, I don't. From my perspective, not not a great deal, actually. Um, you know, I think I I took Christine Lagarde's speech um, you know, that kicked off the conference as moderately hawkish, to be honest with you, just in terms of the emphasis that she chose to to give to things, which seemed to follow the emphasis from the June ECB meeting, which now two weeks ago seems like. The two weeks seems like an age given what's happened in the inter- in, in, in the intervening period um, and clearly the market has gone fully from oh hawkish central banks hawkish central banks inflation risks to when's the recession and it doesn't seem like central banks have quite made that pivot in are you trying time to suggest that, that markets are fickle, Giles? <laughs> Not markets fickle, I don't know. I mean, maybe central banks are just, um, they have too much inertia. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, to be honest with you, the markets have been leading central banks for a year and a half, and you know, it may well stay that way. Um, no, no, I, th- I think it's just you know, worth, worth highlighting that, it didn't. There was no. There was no real evidence, in, to me anyway, that they're watching the markets going. Actually, there's a point that um, you know, let's uh, let you know. There's something we need to talk about. Um, at the same time, I mean, you know, before Sintra, there was the BIS um, annual report and sort of you know, some communication you know, around that. Um, Agustin Carstens was on the panel as well. Um, the BIS is inveterately hawkish and you know, always, always, always worries about inflation. Um, you know, that this time was no different. Um, now that didn't really shine through particularly strongly um, in, in the panel either. I didn't feel, but um, you know, regardless, um, yeah, my basic answer is think whatever you were thinking. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, so putting that together, then what you know, we've talked about long discussions about what you think about the ECB before, and obviously that that hasn't changed this week. Then um, the kind of new news in terms of the data and market sentiment. How does that, uh, I guess, come together in terms of your market views? You know, readers of of what we publish on Agile Markets will know that you. Uh, we're recommending strongly going long the front end of, of European rates last week. Uh, it's a good day to be discussing that because I think as we talked there about 20 basis, or two-year journey at least, it's about 20 basis points lower on the day. Uh, and you've kind of been uh, tempering your bearish conviction, let's say, further out the curve. So uh, I'm guessing those views still hold. 
Yes, I mean things move very quickly, don't they? And uh, you know, it, it's it, again, it's difficult to be you know, maximum conviction when you've just had a, a move in your direction of the size that we've had. Um, you know, I think in in Tanya Buns, actually, you know, I'm sort of leaning a little bit more bearish now after the move that we've had. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it, it's, it's that sort of environment at, at, at the moment. I mean, it just seems like every move is a potential overshoot. Um, I do think there's still some value in the front end, though. Okay. And just to finish up the discussion on Europe, then what about in periphery? Um, you know, there's been a lot of headlines this week and, well, little news, as you say, from Sintra, but a lot of headlines around what an anti-fragmentation uh, tool might look like, how they might use reinvestments flexibly, et cetera, et cetera. I know we talked about this briefly last week, but do you have any kind of high convictions there in, in peripheral spreads? Well, yes, um, still long periphery, which I think we talked about last week because I have a vague recollection that um, I was talking about the positive seasonals uh, for Italy in, in, in going into July and that on top of the expectation of some pushback against this volatility and you know, potentially against the level uh, of spread as well from the ECB, um, it seemed like you know, the reasons to be, you know, to be bearish, you, know, you had to have some pretty good reasons, and I didn't have any in, in the short term, and so you know you might as well be long. I maintain that, to be honest with you, um, it's moved in the right direction, and you know, I, I think with only moderate conv conviction, and that can probably continue. Um, now we were told that the the, you know, the, the purchases associated with the kind of flexibility, this use of flexibility within reinvestments in the PEP and the PSPP uh, would start as of tomorrow. Um, let's see if that happens. To be honest with you, base cases that it doesn't necessarily have to happen. We don't, and at the same time, you know, on the OMT2, this uh, anti-fragmentation tool, there's no, there's nothing new. Um, it seemed, and it seems like, well, the consensus is, well, we could, I think we've already talked about it. <laughs> we don't have to go into that today. <laughs> All right. Um, we can talk about it much more as well when we get closer to the July meeting. Okay. Sticking with central banks then, while we're on the theme, Jan, over to you on Central. As I already mentioned, we obviously had Powell on the same panel. Uh, I guess that was the kind of main central banking event this week. So can you just give us a quick roundup of, of what your takeaway was from a, a US rates perspective, if, if there was anything really to, to talk about uh, when it came to Central this week? I, I think there was stuff to talk about more than the the standard, you know, we will control inflation, don't worry about it, we got this, you know, don't worry about how it's going to happen type of conversation. The, I think the the added level of uh, information that I, I personally got, or at least kind of like the feeling from, from the US side was that it was a little bit, it felt a little bit more downbeat on growth, or at least the potential impact on aggregate demand uh, of, you know, the Fed's tightening. So they're willing to control inflation. And there were you know, statements such as, uh, overshooting or like overdoing on the growth side is not a worry. If not controlling inflation is our number one worry. It might cause a lot of, uh, or it might cause some pain. Uh, they're going to get under control no matter what. So, so there's definitely the the focus is shifting a lot to inflation will come down and growth might come down too. So it's just pretty much 
you know, the, the idea is to pull both demand and supply down and just hope that inflation moderates in the process. And they've acknowledged it. There was also a little bit kind of almost philosophical. Oh, well, what we know is that we don't know much about inflation, which is not really reassuring to markets. But you know, co- combination of those things uh, took to at least fixed income markets and just ended up in a pretty, pretty powerful rally mostly based on expectations that a inflation uh, sorry, central banks or, or the Fed in, in this case will be able to trample inflation initially felt in break-even rates and later on uh, more so in real yields as well as you know fears of kind of recession uh, start kicking in because that was more of the dynamic that I got uh, that being said I was looking to hear a little bit more on uh, on on the University of Michigan survey, which they mentioned as uh, the reason why they upscaled the 75 basis points, or at least Powell had. And I didn't. The same logic should have applied uh, in reverse. You know, if they use in uh, kind of exposed to explain why they hiked 75 basis points, saying the consumer. Uh, so the University of Michigan has a component that asks uh, consumers about their inflation expectations, and that moved higher. And uh, Chair Powell said, you know, that's the reason why, one of the reasons why we upscaled our kind of like a hike base. So that got revised lower afterwards and that wasn't addressed. So the same logic should have applied in reverse, but it didn't. Anyway, uh, anyways, nothing on that. It was mostly on the growth side that uh, that I got the kind of like the new added information for and, and bar markets did as well. Okay. <clears throat> so... Moving on to the data side of things then, because today we've also had, uh, you know, PCE data. Um, we often think of the kind of core PCE inflation as being the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation, I suppose. That showed a decrease in May. So not only a kind of month on month decrease, but also came below expectations. What do you make of that? And, and where does that leave the Fed from here? I think three really key points from the PCE number today. One. Uh, like you mentioned, of course, the drop is is a good thing. It's going to be reassuring for the Fed. Coming below expectations is a is a good thing, and markets priced out some Fed action on the back of that too. Uh, so that so that's number one. Number two, there is a growing discrepancy between the PCE number and the inflation number, the CPI inflation number, which also gets. Uh, perhaps grabs even more headlines, even though the Fed prefers to use the PCE as it tends to more dynamically adjust and reflect the spending patterns of the of the consumer much better. Nevertheless, they can't just ignore uh, or like a much higher levels in the CPI and just uh, stick strictly to the PCE. But that growing wedge between the two uh, will be an important uh, topic to watch. Or, or at least how the Fed handles that will be something important to watch. And the final thing, moving away from the inflation side, but also the spending side, uh, spending was a lot less than uh, than expected. However, I have to point out a lot of the drop came from both in nominal and real terms from uh, goods spending. So non-durables and durable goods both, uh, both fell. On the other hand, services spending still remains fairly strong, uh, which, which has also been the you know, the recent driver of, of uh, underlying driver of inflation. So I wouldn't really go ahead and dismiss as uh, dismiss and say we're, you know, we're out of the danger now. Uh, but th- there is a little bit of a, at least some temporary relief for, for the Fed with like a lower print. I don't think it's going to change the course or anything, but if anything, gives them confidence to maintain and that things are looking a little bit better. Okay, so 
I guess, again, same question to you as I posed to Giles, I'm putting that together, you know, what we heard from Powell this week, what we've now starting to see increasingly in the data, where does that leave your view on markets? I suppose we've we've spoken about this a couple of times and <laughs> you keep telling me it's too volatile to have high amount of conviction. And I feel like Giles was, was telling me a, a similar message, but, you know, you've been calling kind of peak hawkishness in the Fed for a while. It seems like that view is, is playing out. Um, where do where do you think rates go from here or is that not the best way to to play this view uh, so rates have rallied a lot over the last few days too and especially since we since the last time we recorded this but our view was of lower even though we uh, you know because of the whole uh, sell off in rates post cpa post fed we kind of had to stop out of our uh, long recommendation but uh, we have a forecast that we publish and you know readers and listeners generally know our our long bias like you mentioned about the peak uh, hawkishness so so that hasn't changed and i think yield levels are looking a little bit closer to where i would where i think they would end the year uh end the year for the 10 year at least uh, maybe composition will be a little bit different between you know in, inflation part and the real yield side but uh three percent or uh Kind of that ranges where I where is my our medium term view. Tactically, it's it's kind of hard to again have the directional view. But on the back of that, like like you said, we've been talking about the high levels of volatility, and we had a high levels of realized volatility. But behind it, behind it, it left high levels of implied volatility. So now those have been coming off a decent amount post uh, PC post these rallies as the you know the outcome of possible distribution narrows, but. Uh, I, I still think there is kind of value in in selling that type of optionality, particularly in the in the short end of the curve. So things like uh, we're discussing one year, one year type of trades, where uh, we just see a, a comfortable range of of scenarios where the option option would still fail to be in the money. Uh, you know, in the way that we see the Fed can get a little bit more hawkish or maintain course. They they really can take out take the you know uh pull you know slow down that much because there are still inflationary pressures so uh, they're gonna have to maintain at least some level of uh you know, above neutral rate in, is in our expectations while we you know it still fits with the the whole peak hawkishness team so selling optionality makes sense meanwhile we'll be looking for retracements in uh, in uh, in outright yields in the longer part of the curve to see if tactically makes sense to go long or short Okay, so I guess now it's the time for the same, the very same question for you, Jim, <laughs> since Bailey also participated in the same panel as Lagarde and Powell, um, Christine and Jay, um, as they like to call each other. Anything <laughs> of note for the UK in that discussion? Um, honestly, not hugely, I don't think. Um, Bailey sounded pretty cautious on the economy and, and the risks facing the UK economy in the next couple of months. Um, he was very clear that, you know, their assessment was that the UK data was turning uh, and that markets, as you kind of put, Giles, were, were now grappling with that theme. He was clear that he saw risks to the UK as being greater than in other countries, that the UK had started to weaker 
weaken earlier and perhaps faster than than other places. Um, he was very particularly cautious on how you know the sort of lower half of the income distribution was going to be hit in this cost of living shock and, and what that might mean for growth in the UK. Um, so on the economy, very cautious, but but not necessarily more so. I don't think than than we've already heard from him before. He's been very clear about how he sees recessionary risks in the future in the UK, and he's repeated a number of times that the Bank of England is treading this fine line between you know, bringing down inflation, but also uh, balancing, not tipping the economy over into recession. Uh, Markets have largely chosen to ignore those kind of warning signs from him before. Um, So perhaps this is the first time that they maybe listened to him a little bit more. Uh, But I wouldn't have said that that was kind of new rhetoric coming from him. Um, He obviously, you know, talked about high inflation and, and how he saw upside risks. But again, I don't think that was new. And it's probably worth noting at this point that the Bank of England had already revised up there inflation forecast back in May and and the data so far is really tracking in line with those revised up forecasts so um, it's no worse than than they expected in their kind of you know baseline scenarios and don't forget in those baseline scenarios with the bank rate that the market is pricing in they have inflation significantly below their forecasts over the three-year horizon so this doesn't change I don't think the fact that they're signaling that that markets are still pricing in too much when it comes to to bank rate expectations. Um, With regard to the change in the language, you know how they took away that sentence around some further tightening may well be required uh, and they replaced it with this sentence that they could act forcefully if needed. Uh, Markets interpreted that initially, you know, when it was first published at at the June meeting um, as very hawkish. Um, They, again, sort of ignored the conditionality that that was attached to that sentence. Uh, And yesterday, Bailey was quite clear that all options are on the table. You know, yes, they can hike rates faster and and higher if necessary, but it's very much conditional on this being necessary. And he said, you know, this isn't just about rate rises. Everything is on the table now uh, and they will be very data dependent. Asked about whether he saw or whether he would be voting for 50 basis points. Uh, in the August meeting, he was very clear that he would, you know, be watching the data over the next couple of weeks, and it was much too early to to come to any conclusion on that. Um, I guess just to round off the discussion on Sintra, you know, as we spoke about last week, and, and has been a big driver of our change in guilt view, we do think that the data is now turning, and so to the extent that they're closely watching the data over the next. Uh, six weeks or however long we have left, uh, we expect this um, to to weaken. Uh, perhaps more interesting though this week, I think out of the Bank of England was that we heard from for the first time from um, Saunders' replacement on the MPC. Um, the headline sounded significantly more dovish than he is, um, although it's I guess would have been hard to imagine a, a more hawkish member. Um, but it does seem at the moment like he's going to be replaced by someone much more dovish. And he is one of the three that has voted in the last two meetings for 50 basis point hikes. So that does change the skew of risks, I think, on on the MPC at the margin. Although, of course, he will still be voting in in the August meeting, uh, but then not after that. Yeah, Okay. fine. Um, So I guess as a follow on from that, you changed your view on rates last week as... um we discussed now seeing lower rates in the UK and you know, I suppose given what you've just said perhaps your conviction on that should be strengthened <laughs> yeah well definitely not weakened I don't think 
as you said, we revised our you know, view on UK rates to be bullish last week. So we expected yields to go lower. Um, we revised down our target to 215. So obviously in these markets, um, that seems like just one day's move now, but I reckon we're probably still 15-ish basis points away from that. So we still have high conviction in that bullish view. We still think, although markets have repriced some bank rate expectation, there's much further to go. Um, you know, the data is turning, we think. Um, as we spoke about last week, you know, seasonals are, are supportive for gilts in, in the very near term. So yeah, we do still think there's further to go. I mean, as you mentioned, these are super volatile markets and, and they can move towards your target within a day, which obviously lessens your conviction a little bit the closer you get there. Uh, but we do still think that there's, there is at least about 15 or 20 basis points of, of juice in that kind of long 10-year gilt trade. Okay. Um, I suppose we've covered in great depth uh, the, the front end view and the central bank sort of led view. But what about the longer end? Because last week we had uh, a syndication um, at the long end, and that's provoked a lot of discussion. Um, perhaps you can just summarize that for us a little bit. Okay, well, I'm hoping that we might do a bit more of a deeper dive podcast on this. This is a little bit of a teaser to our listeners to come back maybe next week or at least in the next couple of weeks that we'll be looking at this much more closely with our uh, kind of pensions experts in-house. So this is just a sort of uh, teaser for that conversation because uh, we have been looking at this as you know Giles much more closely this week um, you know particularly in light of this indication last week and, and for those that aren't so close to, to the gilt market essentially we there was a long end syndication last week um, and the allocations towards LDI who usually are thought of as having you know very strong structural demand for, for long end gilts was much smaller than it has been um, in recent history and, and that triggered I think a, a lot of discussion around whether, you know, the that was a structural change and shift in demand and, and the LDI actually weren't going to be such big players at, at the long end of the gilt market anymore. Uh, so we've been looking at this in detail and, and trying to, you know, come to some conclusions about the structural short and whether or not it still exists. Um, I think our conclusion is, is that it's nowhere near as big as it once was. Um, and in fact, the, the structural short that does still exist, or much smaller than, than it has been in recent years, we think can even uh, shrink pretty rapidly over the coming years as gilt supply grows. You know, um, we've discussed the kind of upside risks on the supply side for a long time in this podcast, but it's not just about the supply risks. Of course, you also have QT selling, which, which adds even more upside risks. Uh, and that structural short on the liability side, you know, as, as pension liabilities at least stagnate, if not shrink from here, can, can, shift, can shrink as well. Um, I don't think that means that pension funds or pension schemes won't have demand for the longer end of the curve, but perhaps does mean that where we once thought of their demand as uh, being a significant downward force on yields, it's more of just a, a cap uh, on how much further they can go, really. Uh, and probably, you know, in a higher rate environment, they're still likely to have some longer end demand, uh, but it's likely to be reactive to those uh, shifts higher in yields rather than proactive. Uh, and so actually this kind of structural force of demand, which is perhaps, you know, kept you away from sort of recommending steepness or, or being bearish the longer end of the curve is shifting. Um, but like I say, I think that's a much bigger discussion and one that we can go into in much more depth with our, our pensions experts. And uh, I think we plan to do that on a podcast in the future. 
sounds absolutely fascinating. I will definitely be. <laughs> I'll definitely <laughs> be tuning into that. Um, okay, well, in that case, I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening or watching. And if it, I'd just like to remind you that if you like today's episode, please hit the like button to show your appreciation and click subscribe so that you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks again and see you next week.